Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of... Oh, it's Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. Okay, well. <laughs> and today wow. we're joined once again with uh, Kara. Hi. And Molly. Hi. And Thad, Thad who feels left out sometimes. I don't know what you're talking about. That was, like, way last episode. Dude, you gotta learn to let things go in the long interim between recordings. No, you know me. I hold a grudge. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, today we're going to continue our discussion on the male-slash-female gaze. Uh, last episode we talked about pri- primarily the male gaze. This episode we're going to try to get into a much more nebulous topic, uh, trying to figure out what exactly the female gaze is, and also try to figure out can there be one without more advancement in representation. Um, so... All that being said, Molly, would you like to t- try to tell us what you think the female gaze might be? Uh, just gender flip male gaze like, is my basic idea. Okay. It's just, uh, it, 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 I don't, male gaze has a lot of negative connotations. More, I think, because of society and how we and how men behave. So I don't think that it's inherently negative, and therefore a female equivalent of that is not inherently negative. It's down to societal and individual behavior. So it's more like the the dominance of the male gaze is where the negativity comes from, like just the the that inescapability. And like, that and also like just. Toxic masculinity and mm-hmm. patriarchy is going to sour anything done from the male dominance. So, the combination of all of that. Okay. Kara? Um, I think I think there's a lot... There's something... The, the female gaze, I don't think, is actually the flip, necessarily, of the male gaze. Because the male gaze has all these, like, other social things embedded in it and is repeated in these ways. But I would say that the female gaze, especially the way we usually talk about it, is the woman's sexual desire for men. So it's, uh, I would say it's very straight. And I do want to add a little asterisk that the female gaze can, when it exists, sort of replicate other systems. So in the female gaze and talking about female desire, we often see that like maybe people with disabilities are left out and right. things like that. So it's not mm-hmm. good. But the female gaze is essentially... The ways that women create and consume their own fantasy and sexual desires in media. And uh, our, the women's media is, has a tendency to be kind of like weirdly on the edges. It gets tucked away and packed away. And when it's sort of exposed to the light, people have very weird reactions to it, which I think is interesting. I think that, that, uh, that point about... Um... Uh, sort of like with the presumed straight male uh, audience of the the male gaze, like that presumed straight female audience uh, is, yeah, I don't know. That, that, that's that's an interesting point. Uh, how those, despite the the names of both of these phenomena being sounding very broad on their face, they're actually very narrow in like who is doing the gazing. Is like the male gaze is not usually taking into account the gay male gaze. Uh, uh, except like when certain short circuiting things happen, like you have the the sort of aggressive machismo in Top Gun, 
and then we have a volleyball scene that is just the most homoerotic thing possible. Or the so, entirety um, of Tango and Cash. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, the the way that, that uh, the male gaze, and if we're constructing the female gaze as just sort of the flip side of that, the way that that will still often sort of uh, marginalize queer voices is, yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, I wanted to draw to that. But I also, and again, so like Thad's like, oh, it's the flip side. It, it's not a flip, but it's not the opposite. And that's what's weird sometimes is when people are like, oh, this is a sexy movie made for women. Like, this is a sexy thing, woman. And they frame the sex thing the way that men think that women want things. And it's like, oh, oh, no, this isn't this isn't what I wanted at all. And uh, they seem to be very confused by the idea that women have been creating massive amounts of, like, sexual media. And, like, women are the primary consumers and creators of, like, slash fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Romance novels are an enormous, enormous, enormous industry. Um, People ask me, I have to be honest, I didn't read or watch Twilight. And the reason I didn't is by the time that came along, I was like, oh, well, I already have a huge set of romance novels where they have sex in every book. <laughs> so I don't I don't need this anymore. I'm not sure. I, I don't need this insipid build up. I have books that have Yeah, I don't need to read four books to get to what I want and the scene that I want she's like is like not written in the book. You bite me. I have other stuff. Uh. And, and again, like that's uh, I found that usually when you tell people that in that way, they they, they find it really creepy and I'm like I'm sorry, but uh. I I am kind of that was kind of creepy to me, but for me that before don't worry, it's because I was in middle school when Twilight came out. That's when I was reading. That's that's where I, how young I was when Twilight was coming out. And yeah, like, Molly, Molly is the young child amongst all of us. The rest, <laughs> the rest of us who are ancient as as the gods reckon time. Uh, we are the millennials. She is the up and coming uh, Generation Z. She is our future. She is our hope. So I was just I but I just have a hard time thinking in terms of old. So I was thrown off by the why did you have this much porn in middle school? That's <laughs> <laughs> different uh, entirely, but <laughs> Because but, romance uh, novels I just kept on to romance literature and not in the back of the bookstore. The, they're they're not and um Oftentimes they're right by the magazines towards the front. Yeah, and, and it's very interesting the way that, like, they're sort of, like, Twilight was treated as this enormous joke, and, like, there was so much hate and demeaning talk about it, but I feel Still like, is. but you want to know- voted what... the worst movie I've ever made, and I don't know if any of those people have ever seen a movie outside of Twilight. <laughs> yeah. But, like, do you want to know what one of the greatest, I would say, men's romance novels of the past 30 years would be? Which one? X-Men. <laughs> okay. And because X-Men is a romance novel, is a soap opera. I love you, I hate you. Come here, you don't know. You're my secret brother, my twin brother, the future, the past. Go away. <laughs> I love you. Yeah, uh, like, 100%. Like, like, X-Men, like, I I often will put forward the, the argument that comic books are a soap opera, but X-Men are the soap opera of soap operas. Like, that's... And, and again, like when we think about the first X Men movie, may its director rest in peace. He's not dead yet, but he should be. Um, Hopefully. Uh, the, it, the, so the love triangle is sort of our main character is Wolverine, who likes Jean Grey, who's in love with someone who's kind of a tool, and she ends up with him at the end, which is an 
interesting choice that Wolverine is not rewarded with woman, but it's it's He's a mel- melodrama. It's it's a love melodrama, and that's what a lot of comic books and this media that men that's thought of as geared toward towards men and they consume it and they try to elevate it. And then when women turn around and be like, "Well, okay, we like Twilight. Let's elevate that to a movie," it's like, "Oh, this is this is pathetic. This is the worst thing ever. This is for losers." Oh, I'm sorry, uh, but you're right. Just let Cyclops marry the. Uh, identical clone of his dead wife that he didn't know was her i'm sorry <laughs> yeah and then well yeah but th- that's only for a little while before she becomes the queen of hell but that's you know right. but she was the goblin queen yeah the goblin queen the rule she rules hell all right focus oh, okay. sorry <laughs> uh, i i can just say uh on two levels first off having been in the hell of school where <laughs> bullying and stuff happens during twilight uh, when Twilight was coming out, yeah, yeah, oh. I had this weird dichotomy where I devoured the Twilight books. I don't didn't know why at the time. Like I was just like I'm like I don't. This isn't. I'm not enjoying this. Why can't I stop reading? <laughs> I think it's because I was picking up on the massive gayness of Alice and her relationship with Bella. I mm. could be wrong. It could have been something else. But yeah, so like, I had a severe battle with myself when Breaking Dawn came out, because it was the first one that came out after I'd started reading the books. So like, I was literally the first person, like they had a waiting list at the school library. I was literally the first person on it. (laughs) But I was so like, torn up and ashamed of it. That, that I was reading that, that, like, I chose to spend my lunches reading it because I could go high outside near the lockers and in seclusion and read it without anyone knowing what I was reading. May I remind you that this was early fall, late summer, and I was in middle school, and when it, I was in middle school, I was living in Arizona. Right. I chose to be outside in Arizona rather than be inside and let people know I, was, I liked Twilight. Ooh, oh. you are you are really going through it. Yeah, wow. yeah, and um, I, yeah. No, I was a also a middle schooler in Arizona, and uh, Twilight was not. Because I'm a little bit older than Molly, Twilight was not the thing. But um, I actually would. I bargained with the librarians that they would let me hide in the back of the library under the tables and eat my lunch to be away from the other children. So your Arizona story speaks strongly to me and to the fortunateness that I was able to hide in air conditioning. Well, yeah, no, I, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I had nothing really to say. <laughs> I, no, I, I'm being sincere here. Okay. I am. I, I was just going to say, like, this brings up, like, uh, the fact that men oftentimes defend the right to like crap as like I like having these guilty pleasures and now we've got to the point like I don't have to call it guilty I enjoy these but the same sort of enjoyment is not often extended to women yeah like I have almost entirely brothers I came from a pretty big family almost all brothers conversations I would hear and be part of where of them like trying to justify which princess movies boys were allowed to like and which ones weren't. Mm. Um, The end result was you could like Aladdin, Mulan, Princess Bride, and uh, maybe Anastasia. 
<laughs> I would argue the Princess Bride is many things, but not a princess movie. But that's just me. It had princess <laughs> in the title and was mainly about a romance. So yeah, I, I don't. I mean, Jeremiah, you you especially, but kind of both of us are ancient and crumbling to dust. I think maybe you've forgotten how fragile young men are about the word princess. No, this is true. I mean, yeah. that's even that's a that's a bit in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That uh, is savage's entire bit. <laughs> but the the female the, that shame though, and the shame of even consuming anything remotely as seen as the female gaze, and it needing to be hidden away, and especially like even people talk about Twilight over and over and over again, um, because uh, the relationship that the two main characters have is creepy, and if they were humans, it would be abusive, borderline abusive or outright abusive, depending on your reading. And I think that what a lot of people don't get about the female gaze, and there's actually a study that supports this, is two things. And the first is the female fantasy or the woman's fantasy is not always one you want to come true or even try to enact. There's actually a study in like 20, Canadian study in like, what was it, 2014, Thaddeus? 2015. 2015, I'm sorry. And the study was like of sexual fantasies and desires. And at various points, women would stop and be like, well, this is my fantasy, but I don't want to enact it. I don't want it to come true. I just want to think about it and enjoy it. So women have this separation between our fantasy life and our uh, enacted life. The uh, the way that the study referred to it was a difference between sexual fantasies and sexual wishes. And women tended to have a much bigger divide like to have fantasies that they didn't wish for as opposed to men who uh, at least according to that study tended to have their their fantasies and wishes were the same thing Mm -hmm. and the other side of the twilight fantasy and a lot of i have probably 30 or 40 romance novels sitting in the corners they're all supernatural romance because that is my favorite genre and one of the the thematic thing is the man is dangerous but he will never hurt you that's the fantasy that the dangerous man will never ever hurt you. And I don't think that people pick up on that. Edward will never truly hurt Bella because he loves her and they are special and meant together. And therefore you can read it with that insight in mind. And it makes a lot more sense. Everything else falls because the rest of it is just drama and heightened tension. Not actually, is she going to die? Of course she's not going to die because he would never hurt her. Because if he does turn around and like rip off her arms and legs and buries her in the ground, that's not a fantasy anymore. That's a horror. (laughs) (laughs) We have jumped genres. (laughs) And whoa. Sorry. No, 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 no. But like Stephanie Meyer, congratulations. That is an M. Night Shyamalan twist right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like everyone walks out of like the, the, the fourth part of the, the the fourth movie, the you know, part of the third book, and they're like, no one saw that coming. He just he just pulled her head off, man. I didn't like I didn't think he'd bury her, but I didn't think he'd bury her alive either. Climbing <laughs> This got dark. <laughs> uh, and Molly, do you have, have something to add? Sorry. Uh, Molly? Oh, uh, I was just going to say that as the lesbian, I'm not convinced that that's not how Twilight ended. <laughs> I'm up with a man that, that, that feels equivalent. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. uh, but do you, like, does that, does that have any kind of, like, carryover into the lesbian community that you're aware of? Or is that... Um, I mean, we get uh, which part? Uh, well, the 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 idea of a toxic relationship not being the actual relationship you want, but it is in fact like something you. Yeah. 
it's hard. I don't want to speak. I um, I, I don't. I'm not. A, I don't have any study to back it up. Um. Yeah, I mean to be to be clear, the the study that we were talking about, it didn't make it didn't seem anywhere I found in it to show when it would like it didn't seem to be interested in talking about differences between like straight and uh, and gay relationships, which I thought was a, a weird thing to leave out. So I don't know how that complicates it either. Yeah, I would say less often we do tend into like power imbalance, like CEO. Oh, a secretary kind of thing. But due to the uh, long history of, you know, like um, stories where at least one of the lesbians is abusive and, and, and it's to show like how bad this kind of relationship is and so that the happy ending is when she goes back to the man right. and to demonize that weak I, I I'm not like I mean I I agree there is a big difference between my personal fantasies and my personal wishes, but stories themselves, at least that we tell for ourselves, tend to try to be healthier because we have a long history of being of having to deal with the demonization as the only option when. Mm, mm. Toxic is the only relationship that got shown for a long time. And so, like, I I know a lot of lesbians who do like the angst, but even then it's more like stuff happening. I tend to lean entirely towards the happy stuff. Right. There is enough bleakness in the world already. This is true. (laughs) I think that, especially talking about, like, like, lesbians... And the way that they are consumed as product by both straight women and straight men, because uh, in the last episode um, we talked a little bit about the you know the the le- lesbian porn where a man suddenly pops up or the women are have these long terrifyingly fake nails, but there's also that that's actually um, not an unusual thing again in the the fan community or the slash community femdom or fem slash or even in like anime and manga and stuff like that your Yuri, that some of Yuri is for men to look at lesbian women, but some of it is for straight women to look at lesbian women, or sometimes it's for lesbian women to look at lesbian women as well. But I, I think it's interesting that there is um, a fetishization of the queer relationship that's consumed by the straights, like consumed by the straights. And we see that in men and women consuming queer relationships as fans. Yeah, that's why, like, a lot of the conservatives, like their argument, will be you can't have the queer, the gay relationships because that's more sexual than the straight ones. Yeah. Because yeah, reading inherent sexuality into yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just in their head, we are you know, gay stuff is the stuff you pull out for the really heavy, the sexy things. Yeah, to look no. at, and straight is every day. Yeah, the 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 fact that people will press like, oh, well, well, how did you decide to be gay? But no one ever presses. Well, how did you decide to be straight? Mm-hmm. Like, like the pornification, because when you take something that's a very, you know, light queer relationship and you slap an R on it because they're kissing, like that sort of says something to the world. Like these relationships are fetishized and yeah. shameful, and not just. Or even just like YouTube algorithms automatically marking uh, LGBT content as adult content, regardless of what it's about. Just yeah, that 
that inherent like sexualization of it. It's, Sorry, I'm taking the conversation away from female gaze, aren't I? Sorry. No, no, I, I, no. I think this is it's a, it's an important thing to to consider as part of it. I think you, it's it's a specifically because it's not something that any of us immediately like thought of. I think that that's that makes it more valuable to talk about. Well, because Molly, you have a note in here that says uh, Loy Mulvey argued that the female gaze didn't exist since it was still using the language of the male gaze. Hmm. Yeah, she's, she, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Laura Mulvey was the one who, uh, she wrote the piece that... Yeah, the original, um... That created the term male gaze. And that was her argument, was that any time that you couldn't, like, it, it, that, like, just showing male bodies by female bodies, um, were, uh, sorry, show, uh, if a because the language of film was made by men for men, uh, if a woman tried to use the same tactics and camera work to film men that men used to film women, then that would still fall under male gaze because she would still be using the language and and methods of male gaze and uh, just applying it more blatantly to men. Yeah, because so, it's it's because it's about the um the the structures and the the relationships and the treatment, not about specifically what is being treated necessarily. Yeah, I actually agree with this a lot, and that's one of the reasons that when that I think that the fact that the sort of female gaze gets con, and I think for a couple reasons, um, including the way it seems that women take up sexuality and expressing sexuality with more story driven content. Um, that women just seem like in general just to like less interested in watching like really to the point porn. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that the female gaze in the places that I see it mainly rest in fan fiction, in literature, and writing sometimes, in like comics and things like that. But as a general rule, the, the women seem to sort of edge away from film a bit, and we really seem to occupy a written space. In terms of our gaze, and I think it's because that we just can have more control over it. We don't find ourselves falling to these weird, creepy traps over and over again. Like um, l- looking looking at men the way men look at us isn't actually the way we want to look at men at all. Right. Right. Like I saw, like because like I was going like because like I heard it explained that uh, like like I, the argument I hear a lot about like male gaze isn't a problem is like Taylor Lautner in the Twilight sequels mm. or the Magic Mike movies. But as was kind of discussed at the end of the last episode, Taylor Lautner shows up in the Twilight movies when men take over and the Magic <laughs> Mike movies are made by men. Like that is the, just, they have no idea how women want to see the men's. And so they just like, okay, well, how do we want to see you, the women? We'll just flip that. And I mean, for one, I, I mean, I'm sure that there were, I, I, I was in middle school. I saw a lot of people like a lot of girl of uh, the straight girls, like very excited and happy about the uh, shirtless Taylor Lautner. But I, I don't really think that's a good example. Well, <laughs> also the men saying, this is how we want women to see us. Right. 
We're kind of reversing mm-hmm. it. And so um, this is sort of the example. So let's revisit Megan Fox. And she lifts up the hood of the car, and her hands are above her head, and she stretches out her back, and her back is curved, and her shirt rides up, and we see her stomach, right? Right. It's about a 16 or 17-year-old boy there in that moment. And then later on, could you please have an adult woman bark at him? (laughs) And uh, I think that that's creepy by the way, but I think that a lot of people, if you did frame a male character like that, would be immensely uncomfortable if you framed a six, you know, 17 or 18-year-old boy, because he would be a boy, because that's a child, uh, doing something like that. So, like, like to me, it's very clear the female gaze is not the male gaze flipped, and when the male gaze is like, here, this is for the women's. It's like, no, no, this is what you want women to see when we look at you. That isn't what we want to see when we look at you. We want other things, gentlemen. There's that, um, uh, one of my favorite examples of, of that idea was there's a, a, sh- a webcomic called Short Pact, and there was a, a particular strip called False Equivalence where it has this... Uh, comic book guy complaining that like oh, dudes are objectified in comics too look at how big and muscly they are and then the the woman sort of points out that that's not what she would be looking for in an attractive male superhero and so she draws like a batman that she would like which gives him like really like striking eyes and full lips and having him be much more lean and the guy's just like that that art makes me feel uncomfortable to which she responds welcome to the background radiation of my life <laughs> Uh, Molly, you said uh, you wanted to say something. No, I was laughing. Okay, no, no, Sorry. like uh, she was bringing up the Megan Fox. It sounded like you were trying to get something in. Oh no, I was making a joke. She was describing Megan Fox's sexy pose, and I was going, "Keep going, keep describing." <laughs> <laughs> um, Here's the... Just because it's trashy doesn't mean it doesn't also work. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so there's um, and again, I I apologize. Because I'm getting a little bit explicit here. Not too much, but a little bit. That's fine. There is a, uh, I would say that there is a man feature, a male featuring subreddit, as I'm going to call it. It's not necessarily for, it's going to be for queer men or for women or for anyone that likes men. And it's the, the Lady Boners Gone Wild subreddit, right? Okay. Here is one of the rules. This is a rule of the subreddit. All posts must contain one photo that shows half your face. We're looking for half of the following three facial features, mouth, nose, and eyes. <laughs> and yeah, this is this is specifically, uh, if, as I understand it, Lady Boners is specifically about posting pictures of attractive men, right? Yeah, but it's it's self it's self posts, so you're hmm. not you're supposed to post pictures of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, yeah, but, but, it, but people are posting themselves for uh, presumably straight women to look for, at. So, yeah, so here's my question: I just want to make sure they want all three of those things, or they have to have uh, one have of them. One of them. Okay, you have have like, because that's not half your face. face. That is the face. Yeah, so yeah, you have to have, like you can have to have your eyes in it, or you have to have your mouth and nose in it, or something like that, because okay. they want at least two thirds of your face. So you can't post headless body. Oh, okay. I mean, you can if you do an album, you can post one of headless po- body and things like that. But like the very specifically, like we don't aren't just looking for a picture of your of just your parts or a picture right. of just your they ass, want the whole thing, your face. And they found um, I again, this is a long time ago that um, when the men smile. They get a lot more upvotes. <laughs> and so that's the female gaze. Like, that is the rule of, like, our, like, selfie, po- our Gone Wild subreddit is we want to see your face. We like to see your mouth. We like it when you smile. 
we want right. to see you. And so it's an interesting part of like the female gaze where if you look at like maybe just the Gone Wild that features women, you may not see their face or bo- you may not see their face at all. Well, some of them might even have rules say you don't have a face because we don't want don't want the identity known. Simply yeah. By, simply because they know that men will behave in a way that is. Yeah, unhealthy. I mean, the, yeah. yeah, the fact that it, it is also a safety issue. So, like, there's so many. Uh, but that, is, yeah, that is super interesting, though. That that's. Uh, yeah, and there's there's a, a lot of focus where um, if there's doubt that it's your picture, the mods will demand proof that this is you because mm-hmm. you're not supposed to other people. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So it's, it's it's interesting in those ways in the way that it sort of functions in that sense. And I think that that sort of like underlays a few of the interesting differences of the male versus the female gaze is, is what we want is a little bit different than what people might expect if they never uh, spoke to a woman. Well, I, I have ahead. to wonder how much those, that specificity of features is also to make sure that, and, and this is just kind of more of a joke, but also kind of not because of the cult of the group of girls I grew up with to ensure that, you could put pictures of the Phantom of the Opera on. <laughs> no, I am a hundred percent committed to this being a very likely story. <laughs> um, Got to put a half mask on that. Mm. Well, to continue with Megan Fox, because apparently this poor woman is the the cipher for this conversation. Jennifer's body, which is oh, that's a good movie. Which is now almost get experience a renaissance, renaissance because there are now more women critics who are going, no, 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 this is actually a really good movie. Um, basically, is written and directed by a woman, by two separate women, but still, it is about how Megan Fox, almost Megan Fox herself, is viewed by people. And it's about being gay. And it's about being <laughs> I mean, she's a, she's a demon that killed... She's a demon that uh, uh, treats men terribly, but is perfectly nice to women until they hurt her. It's, it's I feel that's a pretty blatant metaphor. Right. This this brings me joy. I did not see this movie when it came out. Um, not for any. I think I actually didn't see it because I was afraid of what it was going to be. Right. Well, no. It's a it's the first movie by Karen. I don't know if it's the first, but Karen Kusama, who did Destroyer, the Nicole Kidman war that's out right now. And it's written by Diablo Cody. Mm-hmm. And it's a uh, really... Well, I haven't seen it either, but I remember when it came out, it got trashed. But I've seen a lot of, like, revisitations of it. Yeah, like, over more. over the last year or so, I've heard a lot more of, uh, yeah, just a lot of people doing revisits and saying, like, actually, this, uh, this was never bad. <laughs> well, and this brings us to uh, Ghostbusters. The last yes. Yeah, I love that movie. It's so much fun. Do we all um, wait? Which one are we talking to? Does it matter? Do we all agree that we all love all the Ghostbuster movies? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. On board. Yeah. Now I'm talking about the one, the Paul Feig's uh, Ghostbusters, Melissa McCarthy. You know the the, the Ghostbusters Cameron. movie that uh, more people hate than actually saw. Yeah. Yeah. Like it wasn't the best movie I saw the year it came out, 2016, right? Right. Yeah, 2016. It was not the best movie I saw in 2016. But it was the most fun I saw in yeah, this. It, it, it repeatedly put big old smiles on my face, and that is all I was wanting. Um, but two things. One, the way they were dressed in just normal, comfortable Ghostbusters jumpsuits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And secondly, Thad and I don't boast this, the way they treat Kevin. 
they it's genuinely fa- like Kevin. Yeah, it's fascinating because he's he's portrayed as such a buffoon, just a, such a big old dumb pile of meat. But not in a way that's really at all mean to Kevin. No, the, the joke is them, and it's it's great when the villain, good names, the villain takes possession of Kevin. Like, give him back! He's dumb, but he's ours. And you're like, reflecting on his useless self. Uh, oh. He is he is just a Labrador retriever of a man. I'm blood to my the original producers. So what were you saying? I was just saying, I seem to remember him wearing a lot of sweaters in that movie, yeah. but that could be a false memory. Yeah, no, you're right. He's wearing clothes, just like... like I don't remember many shots of his abs. No, but he did have, like, he brought the pictures of himself shirtless, though. Yeah, like, what do you think? Me, me playing saxophone or me <laughs> listening to saxophone? Um, <laughs> Mel Brooks, the producers, there's a gag in where... Max Bialystok gets a new secretary. And she's the, the typical blonde bimbo, for uh, lack of a better word. Yeah. And while they're never outright mean to her, they talk about her rather than to her. Yeah. Where did you find her? I found her at the library. Ula dance? Yes, Ula dance. It's like there, there's no real appreciation for her as a human being. Whereas, and that's commonplace throughout most movies when you have this kind of trope. But I found it really fascinating that they, yes, they sexualized Kevin, but they liked Kevin as a person. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Kevin, even with his over-the-top stupidity, had his own kind of agency. Like, right. it, it's absolutely fascinating to see like them playing all of those dumb blonde tropes, but still... Still doing it in a way that's very kind to the person being mocked. The sandwich bit at the end gets me every time. <laughs> He's eating a sandwich. He takes it and throws it. He's like, a ah, sandwich. And someone throws it back at him. And he just, like, he's so happy. Uh, All right. Yeah. Sorry. No, well, <laughs> the, someone pointed out best. This is going to be just a slight sidetrack, but Chris Hemsworth. Might just be the the male male Monroe of all time. Like he understands, he looks good, and he plays it to the hilt, and he plays with it beautifully. Uh, yeah, yeah. I am. I don't get it, but I I, I can believe it. Right. Yeah, I could see, I could see a kind of Marilyn Monroe energy to him. That that makes sense. Yeah, yeah because like he he typically doesn't play the smart role, but he never plays the moron. And I yeah. think there's a bit of a difference. And he no. never really plays the jerk either. No. It's not outside of uh, Bad Times at Royale, but that's another thing entirely. But he is hmm. part of one of the I best scenes. I didn't see that movie, though. I forgot that happened, so. <laughs> it's worth a watch. Um, but I, what I want to get into is the fact that we've talked a lot about the sexualization of the female gaze, but the female gaze is also much like the male gaze can also exist outside of sexuality. Hmm. That's just like, sexuality is the, the most pointed part that we almost always jump toward. Right. That's because, like, we, we mentioned before, like, men will almost typically have one woman in the cast, and that would be, like, to balance it out, quote-unquote. Yeah, you know, the woman. Right. That way we have all of them represented. But you can have a cast of basically all men, and it can still have a female gaze. 
It's all oh, about are we, like... Are we, about to, are we about to swerve where I think we're going to swerve, Jeremiah? I don't know where you think I'm going to swerve. Are, are we... Are we are we going to talk about Point Break? I mean, we could. <laughs> you brought it up. <laughs> I'm just saying, uh, early Catherine Bigelow is a wild ride. <laughs> it really and is. It is a, it's a ride worth going on. Well, like, uh, if you listen to the podcast, I, I gave you the link to like They bring yeah, up a yeah, point it, about that. Again, the girlfriend for the character was, a, was essentially going to be the typical blonde, big-boobed airhead. And then they're like, what if we just cast, uh, I forget her name. Uh, I do as well because names are bad. Lori Petty? She's in that movie. It's been a while. I tend to forget that there are characters in the original Point Break beyond Lori Petty. <laughs> no, it's Lori Petty. Yeah. You're right. It's Lori yeah, Petty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, like, they, go, they go with her instead, and it's a completely different take, and it's brilliant. Yeah. And the fact that she has that wonderful line of, who cares? <laughs> my name's Johnny Utah. Who cares? <laughs> uh, I love Lori Petty. As well as you should. She's amazing. <laughs> uh, can, we, can we just turn this into a podcast about Tank Girl? <laughs> yes! Yes, I uh, love that movie. I love it so much. You do? I yay. didn't know that anyone besides me had ever seen it. I, I I get why people like hate that movie, but it's so much fun. Sorry. I, I I love everything about that movie. That movie is the only movie that may motivate me to ever cut my hair like shorter than my shoulders because I would love to have her like just destroyed looking nonsense hair. It's it's everything mm-hmm. that makes me happy. I like a League of the Own. It's not yeah, I mean, yeah. That's a good movie. Huh? It's a baseball movie. One of the best ones. But, alright, we're not going to turn this into a baseball podcast yet. <laughs> no, uh, we won't let you turn it into a baseball podcast. This was yeah, going just Lori Petty before you butt in. Jeremiah, uh, I would like to let you know that I did work as a waitress at a minor league baseball field for quite a while. So, I mean, we could talk about baseball. Yeah, too. yeah, we could. We, I don't know why Thad has been hiding this. Yeah. I hide everything. It's a reflex. This is true. Alright, Molly, what were you getting ready to say? I don't know. I, I, oh, I don't sorry. remember. <laughs> That's okay. Um, all right. So basically, what we're trying to get the female gaze is the tropes are still there, but the women are allowed fuller inner lives. They are allowed to have thoughts and actions contrary to what the men would like them to have. They are more than just representations. Hmm. It is uh, not just the token woman. Right. And even then, um, like, which sort yeah. of like what. Sort of like you were saying, like with the point break thing, like even though there's one woman in the primary cast, she's clearly not the token woman. Right. Like it's not a matter of population, it's a matter of characterization. Exactly. The amount, and like again, it goes all back to camera placement and how the characters are written and brought to life. It's more than just the, like the gender has less to do with it than the structure and the framework of the narrative. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, Carol, you have a note in here about the uh, female gaze and female driven creations. What we would have gone over that. Oh, have we? Oh well, yeah, kind of. Well, the the, the female driven creations, I, I would especially talk about a lot about um, a- anime 
anime, anime and manga and things like that, because there are these huge groups that are, or these huge creations that are, that's all that they are. And I mean, of course, I think that sort of for something that's more mainstream for the normal people would be like Sailor Moon was written by a woman. And it was for largely girls to consume. And so we have these sequences. And I think this gets back to what Molly was talking about earlier with Wonder Woman's butt. So we have this sequence where, like, Sailor Moon is kind of clearly naked when she's transforming. Like, her clothes disappear, and it's just her outline. And then her clothes reappear, and we see her skirt flail around, and then she does her pose. And it's very uh, not sexual. And I just... It's it's just like yep, there like women have bodies too. Ain't right. that fascinating? It just I mean, I feel I think better if, just, if they weren't fourteen, but yeah, I agree. And also, of course, Sailor Moon. Depending on how deep you get into the Japanese, it has characters that um, disguise themselves as boys, or disguise themselves as girls, or seem to switch genders, or are explicitly in queer relationships. For some reason, they make cousins in the English version. Oh, which, uh, the American translation is uh, interesting. That is so delightful. That, that it is such an inter- uh, good point. Uh, I don't even know what to call it, that the that the American translators look like, We'd rather imply incest than let it yeah. be lesbians. I, I, I'm going to go with straight terror. That's that's what I'm going to describe. <laughs> like, yeah. They're so clearly into each other that all they did was make it more taboo. Yeah, it's amazing. But um, it, it would have been better to just cut the characters to, than make them related. Like, from the standpoint of trying to make it straight. Right. Uh, <laughs> that is the the bizarre paradox of being a heterosexual in America and the Gordian knots you would tie yourself into to avoid seeing gay people. I'll yes. make them related. That'll solve it. <laughs> <laughs> My, um, for me, uh, a similar note uh, on, like, portrayal is that, like, um, also on a- animated, but Western is, like, um, frozen as compared to uh, some of the other Disney princess movies, like um, uh, particularly the original trilogy made when Walt was alive of Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella, where um, with Frozen, you know so much more about Anna and Elsa, like just from like how they behave and how they speak, like that, not just like their personalities, but their interests, like, and for heaven's sake, let it go, Elsa name drops fractals. Like, <laughs> she's clearly been doing something beyond sitting around in uh, in her in depression in, when she's isolated. Like you, like, you know things about Anna and Elsa and what they like and what they're interested in without having to have, like, blatant exposition dumps. In yeah, contrast to... I can tell you very little about Princess Aurora from Sleeping Beauty. Uh, she she has an irresistible desire to touch spinning wheels. She sleeps. <laughs> she has a neat dress when she's in peasant mode. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. I uh, Snow White likes apples. Yep. I actually, um, to speak of Disney princesses, uh, my, my one of my favorites has always been Ariel, and I think that there is an interesting thing about like female versus male gaze and interpretation. 
Because the way I read, so people are like, so Ariel gives up everything she wants in order to be with a man, and that's a little bit disturbing. I'm like, no, no, no. Ariel leaves behind the world she didn't want because she's a passionate scientist, and she finds a man who not only loves her background and respects her for it, but also loves her interest in its unusual species, i.e. humans, and respects that about her. And that's something we should encourage little girls to look for. So that was always my interpretation of it. So I think it's, you know, your mileage may vary. <laughs> like with I, I do like I, I have mixed feelings about the Little Mermaid, but I do appreciate that Eric when he uh he, he runs into Ariel in human mode on the beach and she's clearly mostly naked and all this stuff and his response and his interest kind of wanes the minute he realizes that she's can't speak and therefore is not the specific woman he's looking for. Like she's like El- uh, everything Ursula says to uh, about what men want in a poor, unfortunate souls is wrong. At least in the concept, in the context of the woman Ariel is of uh, the man Ariel is after. Yeah, he doesn't want a woman who's silent. He wants a woman who speaks. Right. And that giving that up actually loses her the things that she, she wants. Don't give in, ladies! <laughs> or, um, a, 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 my favorite, like, example of, like, my go-to, like, this is a straight relationship I can get behind, of which there are a few, is Dimitri and Anya in Anastasia. Because it's not until she, like, st- actually, like, managed to prove, like, that she is a like until she bests him in snark matches and casually slaps him and ends up making and hurting him that he starts expressing an interest. It's like once she's I don't want to say proven her herself, but like once you know once she's made it clear that she is not just an idiot or a bimbo or an object that he starts expressing the interest. Yeah, I mean dudes sometimes like to be slapped around too. So told. <laughs> uh, no, that's uh, that kind of uh, the characters getting to assert their the things that they want, and that being respected is. Uh, I do think it's interesting the ways that that's the those particular examples are often not read that way, and that's. No, yeah, I suppose that... Anastasia and Little Mermaid weren't made by women, so that kind of. We wandered off topic with those. All right. yeah, that's, that's all right. The the author is dead. We can interpret however we want. Well, this, this brings to, <laughs> this brings to I was going to bring this up. Um, the author's dead argument does that get affect? Does that affect the male gaze or female gaze argument? Does that just simply mean well the author is dead, so we can interpret this however we want? I I well here's here's what I'll if I may. Okay. Because uh, this is something I've read way too many times. Uh, I usually find that the way that the death of the author is talked about is not really, uh, ironically, is not what the author meant. Uh, <laughs> because the typically, like re- reading the actual essay, it's not so much that the author doesn't matter; it's that the author is no longer the sole arbiter of what matters uh, and the idea that the, that meaning only comes from the author uh is because the last line of the essay is the death of the author is the birth of the reader right so it's it's less about 
that it's it's less saying the author doesn't matter and more saying that the reader does. Right. Uh, so and I guess I guess. Uh, oh yeah, uh, sorry. No. So what you're what you're saying the article is what the theory is is not so much ignoring the author but taking the author's views into account with yours and coming up with an interpretation. Yeah, I think there's a much more uh, synthesis as opposed to rejection. Uh, approach to to the death of the author that that is offered by the text depending on how you read it of course (laughs) i would say that with film like we're on a much more visual medium Mm. and so like it's a lot harder to ignore intent like uh like to going back again to megan fox and transformers i mean it's Kind for all that the writing is good, it's kind of hard to ignore what the camera is doing and what the camera is saying. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree uh, with Molly on that. I, I think one of the things that makes it harder to apply that to film is that film already doesn't have an author. Right. It has many authors and many types of conveying narrative. And some of those are easier to death of the author than others, I think. Um, I think that this is sort of like what I was talking about earlier, why I feel that women have kind of, and for many reasons, shied away from film as like the way to express our views in some way. It's because it is so embedded. And of course, the, I mean, it's even things like, it's about creating it in ways that doesn't re reinscribe these sorts of very male gazy things that Mulvaney, Molly, am I saying that right? I'm terrible with names. Uh, oh. Mulvey. 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 Uh, okay. It's literally written right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and like she's saying, like, you can't really have the female gaze because you're using all of these male gazy tools to do it. But the other big part of that is like, it's not also about the tools, it's about the consumers because what do they say over and over again? A women... Uh, uh, you can't make movies for women uh, because they don't make money. Well, first of all, they do. And secondly, women are the majority of the population and the majority of the movie-going population as well. So what is this? But just this invisibility of the female gaze. We're literally standing in the street screaming, give us the movies, we'll spend our money on them. And people just can't seem to look to grasp that concept. Well, I think you bring up a point because with like uh, you brought up like the female gaze is really popular in like stuff like animation and mostly like fanfic and romance novels and stuff. Not so much with animation, but with the other stuff, like there's much more control over what you're gonna do and what you want, how you want to structure it and perceived. Whereas film, there's a lot of layers to go through. And perfect example: Patty Jenkins with Wonder Woman. That was her second film in 10 years. Mm. Her first they... film was Monster. Film, oh, wow. like anything, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And it's just, like, she did a lot of television, but television's much different than film. A lot different pro- uh, production planning goes into television than film. You're looking at visuals a lot differently in television than you are in film. And I think there is a little bit, like, you have, it requires more, like, of a community effort in film simply because it's such a massive effort to make a movie than it is to, I would say, write a book in which it takes at most two people, the person to write it and the editor. And maybe yeah, I mean, I, generally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really cost $50 million to make a good book. No. no. Well, I Although mean, I would God, take $50 million, $50 million you dollars. make a great book. I mean, I would take $50 million, and I think the book would be pretty good. <laughs> 
I think but, most I mean, books and movies are like what Mario Puzo said about The Godfather. Had as many people, if I had known as many people would read it as I thought they would, I would have read a better book. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I mean, this is going back to something a little bit Molly said earlier about, about the framing of, of Wonder Woman's derriere in the uh, <laughs> No Man's Land scene. And Patty had to fight for that scene. Yeah. Like, brutal fight for it. Like, there's no point to this. And it's like, well, it shows her being a hero and caring about the little guy. And people really responded to that. And she had to fight for it to be included. So you have to wonder, like, even if you have a crew and a cast and uh, everybody super on board with, like, female gaze, you then do have to walk it in front of the studio, and, or if not the studio, find a distributor. And if they say, we won't do it, and we won't distribute it unless you hack it like this, and you have to make sort of the decision of what you're going to do there. Well, yeah, one of the great untold, like, I would say, hurdles of a director is knowing how to fight with the studio. And that's something a lot of people, modern directors, male or female, don't know how to do, because yeah. we've sort of destroyed the sort of I don't want to say the hierarchy of how you go from one to the other because now you make one indie film and then into a big budget film as opposed to slowly working your way up and understanding how to work different hurdles and how to do the levers and gears of the whole giant mechanization of the process. But even then, you are right, like having to fight for a scene, that scene is like not only is that a, a female gaze issue, but that's something me and Thad talked about in the heroism episode of just showing the hero being a hero outside of the larger mission. Yeah, it's and like, because the hero is a woman, they're asking a question about why does this scene need to be... Like, they wouldn't have asked that question if it were like, let's have Superman in World War One for some reason. Like, oh yeah, have a no man's land. That makes perfect sense. And uh, it's a weird thing yeah, of like, in film, you start getting not just the female gaze, but the female gaze, as you brought up, connected to everything else. The, the female gaze runs into the uh, into the patriarchy. Right. And because there aren't that many women editors, um, as we discussed at the end of the last one, they t- they do good work, but they'll often get fired. Um, yeah. I mean, like cinematographers, the... Cinematography and editing, two of the most essential tools to film language and film grammar, uh, are the two of the biggest boys clubs outside of maybe um, music. Yeah, and I mean, like, the the greatest action movie of our lifetime, Mad Max Fury Road, was yeah. edited by a woman. Right. And it was edited phenomenally by that woman. <laughs> Thelma Shoemaker has edited the majority of Martin Scorsese's movies, and there's mm. no more masculine filmmaker, some would argue. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... But it's, again, uh, there's, just, like, there's not a lot, like... I'm sure they do try to mentor it, but there's only so much that can happen. Like like I said, it's going to have to be a community effort. Mm. But and this also, so, I mean, we, the more, I'm going to say not the more gentle, but the less explicitly sexualized female gaze. But if we want to go like back to the really explicitly sexual female gaze. Which, of course, it, we do. We do. <laughs> it, it makes people uncomfortable. It seems to. If you really dig into these things and talk about them and talk about like this is the pornography that women create and consume go and look at it people people seem to back away from that really intensely where we can talk about like the pornography that men create and consume even the more questionable kinds pretty freely right we don't seem to do that with women we don't we seem to be okay with talking about like oh the jailbait subreddit was gross and inappropriate but then you're like yeah do you want to talk about that scene and black butler 
the anime uh, that's meant let's, for, like... Let's not talk about that. I just yeah. want you to know, it took me a second, like, does she mean Black Swan? What the, what the hell? No, Black, Black Butler, anime, meant for women, designed for women, and ships really hard, an adult with a child. Super weird. Straight, straight women, just to... Straight women, yes. That's why I sort of opened with my initial concept about, like, straight women consuming, like... Not wa- not observing, consuming, creating and consuming queer relationships is a thing that's super weird. And it's one reason why the male, why the female gaze can get to a certain point where it's like, yes, it's this reaction, it's patriarchal culture, but it does reinscribe a lot of these weird power dynamics. Yeah, like there, there's like having their own kind of exploitation uh, films and genres. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like on the subjects of like being able to talk about men's and being comfortable with men's explicit stuff but not women's like i'm reminded of a picture i saw of uh quentin tarantino on set directing the cameraman to really get in on this lady's foot (laughs) i can't really think of a of a equivalent with a female director I really can't. Well, this is the thing also, like, um, when men love to talk about sexuality and explore sexuality on film, but they almost always do it using a woman. Yeah. yeah. Either she says something where she's not in control of the body or she's not enjoying it. And even then, like, even when they do explore sexuality, it is almost 100% of the time heterosexual sexuality. And again... It's mm. a male sexuality forced upon a woman. Yay! Yeah. Art. <laughs> I'm sad now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know if this is a good enough time to mention uh, the Handmaiden, uh, by Park Chan Wook, which has. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how lesbians view it. I believe, like, I don't know, like, how it was received by the queer community. I just know I remember watching, going, "Holy moly!" <laughs> I don't know that I've seen it, so and so and since I hadn't seen it, I hadn't looked into how the community looked at it. Uh, I just know it has a POV shot from a vagina, and I just I'm sorry. Going, um, I don't think I know if any other male director would have the audacity to do that. That would be terrifying. <laughs> like that would just be feel kind of violent. It's like, not meant to be violent. But, I know. Just, I know. That, but again, they get, this is the male gaze. It's not meant to be, but this is how it feels. Yeah, like what? What? Yeah, what the what the director means and how the people who uh, view it take it. Not not the right. same thing. Not only that, but the people who view it, who the who are ostensibly the thing they are looking at. Yeah. Sorry, the person they are looking at. No, no. I think thing is actually appropriate in this case. Yeah. I think you got it right the first time. I'm with Thaddeus on this one. Like if you're if you're being objectified, you are being treated as a thing. Yeah, you are the milf. That is what you are, and right. that reflects on you, not me, the one who said that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, does anyone have any closing uh, takes on this? Because it's time for us to head out on that disturbing dark note. <laughs> Sorry, that's okay. That was my fault. I'm the one who brought up the handmaid. <laughs> Why do I have that image in my head now? I'm sorry. Why, Jeremiah? Uh, because of Jeremiah, that's why. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I don't know why he felt the need to put it in there. All right, I don't well, know. Uh, I'm getting it now. 
Well, now that now that we've had enough of Jeremiah's brain poison. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. So no, no closing remarks from anyone. Uh, well, yeah, maybe maybe one day we will know what the female gaze is, yeah, or man. if it can be. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say that uh, my sort of closing thoughts is it is that the female gaze is very much a work in progress. I think that with I'm hoping that we see more of it, and um, of course the. The greatest thing of the, as, you know, again, a straight woman, the greatest part of the female gaze, if it gets stronger, more powerful, and it starts to be disseminated more, is that I will eventually be able to see the queer gaze or these other gazes at other people and expand my own, like, understanding of life itself. And that other people feel more included when they see that they are, because when you see, you're also being seen. Right. So... Let's not end on. Let's not feel sad. Let us have hope for the future. That someday we will all be able to fetishize each other. Equally. Yeah, like if, if the if the straight male gaze is is not the only thing anymore, there is some hope there in what can come. Yeah, I, I buy that. Yeah. Yeah, one can hope. One can hope. Keep hope alive, don't you? I had hope, and then you mentioned life itself, and I just became angry and solved it. <laughs> I mean, that's your problem. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's your problem. Wow. <laughs> Don't forget to check out the other podcasts here, The Fundamentals. You can check out with Kylie and Gretchen and Julia over The Fundamentals. Or maybe dive into the Game of Thrones books with Kylie and Julia over Unabashed Book Snobbery. Of course, there's always Dan and Bridget discussing mysterious and truly frustrating craft of writing over a right to survive. But wait, there's more! Why Corey and Elizabeth talk about queer women in media and queer uh, women fandom over Ladies First. But don't forget about our latest podcast, That's Haram, That's Haram, with Koi and Sahar, as they talk about issues and representation for Muslims in both media and fandom. Thank you for listening. Say goodbye, Thad. Okay. Uh, say goodbye, Molly. <laughs> Bye. And say goodbye, Kara. Bye. You don't have to do what he says. Oh, I am so done with you. <laughs>